I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Susan Moran. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, February 11th, 2014. Coming up, new research suggests that the Amazon basin is not storing as much carbon dioxide as was previously thought. We'll get the lowdown from a local scientist about what that means for future climate change. And we'll get a better grip on how much greenhouse gases are emitted from fossil fuel power plants. We begin with some of the recent news in science. new study from Tel Aviv University reveals that black holes formed from the first stars in our universe heated the gas throughout space later than previously thought. They also imprinted a clear signature in radio waves, which astronomers can now search for. This early phase of the universe is of particular interest to astronomers. When and how did the first stars form? The mix of elements back then was different than the mix we see today because many of the elements, including the carbon and heavier atoms that make up our bodies and the Earth, had to be created by that first generation of stars. How can we look back so long ago? Well, since the universe was filled with hydrogen atoms at the time, a promising method for observing the epoch of first stars is by measuring the emission of hydrogen using radio waves. The researchers' results were published last week in the journal Nature. For How on Earth, I'm Joel Parker. Scientific worlds are colliding as parallels between physics and biology are revealed. Epigenetics studies how the environment can make significant changes to a cell's programming that's not already encoded in the genomic sequence. Such mechanisms impact traits like risk for disease. These changes can be passed on like biological memories from generation to generation. Researchers at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory have just determined that a set of mathematical and statistical tools used for physics can be applied to epigenetics. They hope that the model will illuminate how molecular components interact to read these modified genes and interpret them for the cell. What else will be learned as disciplines begin to merge? This is Kendra Kruger for How on Earth. Those feet in ancient times walked upon England's mountains green some 800,000 years ago. Five homonyms, including a couple of kids, walked south along the mudflats in the estuary of a river. Their tracks were gently buried until excavated under eroding cliffs and the scouring seas along the shore of modern East Anglia. Researchers stumbled on the footprints in 2013. The British scientists have carefully recorded the fragile impressions in the sand using precise photography and mathematical algorithms. They are certain the tracks weren't made by other animals. Heel prints, arches, and even toes can be made out. The remains of work to stone tools, plants, and animals are found in associated deposits. What kind of animals were these hominids? The team estimates they were Homo antecessor, who lived in the area much earlier than Neanderthals. They were about as tall as we are. The land was covered in piney woods, spruce, birch, and alder, heath, and grasses. 
temperatures were cool on that day, close in time to the onset or retreat of glaciers. There are only a handful of older hominid footprints, and they are all in Africa. This is Jim Pullen. listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. The Amazon basin contains the largest tropical rainforest on the planet. It's been critical not only for its beauty and biodiversity, but also for its ability to store more carbon dioxide than it emits or gives off. Its soil and above-ground biomass makes the Amazon one of the largest reservoirs of carbon dioxide. And that has helped to keep climate change from accelerating even faster. But a new study shows that the Amazon's tropical ecosystems may actually give off more CO2 into the atmosphere than they absorb. To discuss what's shifting in the Amazon basin and the implications of this shift, we have one of the authors of the study on the line. John Miller is a scientist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration here in Boulder. Specifically, he's with NOAA's Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences, which is at the University of Colorado. John, welcome to the show. Thanks pleasure to be here. So what we thought was a huge carbon sink or storage house is actually not? Uh, you know, n- not exactly. I mean, we, we have to be careful about how much we generalize because what, what our study looked at in particular were, were, two, were two specific years. Um, one year, 2011, was quite, I would say, uh, a little bit wetter than average or more or less a typical year for the Amazon. It's a rainforest after all. It rains a lot. Right. Um, and uh, 2010, on the other hand, was a very dry year um, where uh, for the Amazon, what that means is that the dry season, um, which is typically about, which we would define any month where there's less than four inches of rain, uh, per per month, um, that was oh, those dry months were drier than normal, and the dry season lasted longer than normal in so, 2010. So drier than four inches. Yes, exactly. So um, that's that's just your typical dry season month. But but in 2010, it was much drier than that. Um, just a few inches of rain, and also um, spread out more um, throughout the Amazon Basin. And one, one thing that is important for your listeners to understand is that the Amazon Basin is, is enormous. It's roughly the size of the continental United States. Huh. And with that and about, uh, but the Amazon Basin is not all forest also, so it's a little bit more complicated. Um, it, it's, it's probably about 75% forest and 25% has is uh, is natural grassland savanna areas all, then, all of which actually store carbon but are the forests the bigger carbon the, sink absolutely right mm-hmm. the forests the forests are the bigger we believe are the bigger certainly the bigger carbon uh, sink and have more capacity also to release carbon because they store so much carbon so back to your original question the, the why we can't generalize this because because we were looking at two years and so we what we what we really found was that if the weather and the climate in the future changes such that we have more dry seasons and we've seen two extraordinary dry seasons two kind of 100 year droughts in the last 10 years one in 2005 and one in 2010 mm-hmm. if this becomes more frequent what we're saying is that 
the likelihood is that the Amazon basin will not be able to absorb nearly as much carbon as it would under normal conditions. So that just, is, go on. So, so tease out a bit what what it means to have a super dry year. I mean, before we get into two years, does not make a trend, but. So so it's super dry. Does that mean it's more prone to fire and the fire is what's emitting so much yeah, of CO2? Right. There's there's two parts to the story. The first is, is exactly what you say. So humans are the cause of almost all the fires in the Amazon. But in a dry year, supposedly the, the, the fires that humans start get out of control more easily. So there's what we saw was that from our aircraft measurements was that in 2010, there was much more fire than in 2011. Um, that is one part of the story. The other part of the story is that when you have dry conditions, trees in the, in the tropics are very moisture sensitive, so that mm. their ability to photosynthesize, to, that is to grow and take up carbon dioxide and convert that into um, plant tissues, that is becomes much more limited in the dry year than in the wet year. So we saw two effects. That is the increase of fires putting out more CO2, and then the parts of the Amazon forest that were not burning, which is the majority, those parts, they were really inhibited in their ability to photosynthesize. Interesting. So how can you tease out fire from deforestation, namely clearing for soy production, and fire just from drought, creating more intense fire. And since you're talking about the implications for climate change, does it really matter? You know, some of it matters from a policy point of view in, in the sense that, that you know, we, we always want to know when we measure, um, we want to know as much as possible when we measure gases from the atmosphere and try to interpret on the what it means on the ground about what parts do humans have control over and what parts do humans have much less control over. And in this sense, um, you know, burning for massive clearing for industrial soy, for example, um, you know, highly mechanized agriculture, or even small-scale burning for, for, to create uh, small pastures for animal grazing, you know, th those, are, those are very much potentially under our control via policy. And indeed, the Brazilian government has very strong policies um, to, uh, to, to enforce, not to enforce these necessarily, but to, but to regulate what, what land clearing can be. Now, these people break laws, and they're not always enforced as strongly as they could be. Right. So I'm curious also, over two years, how can you be confident extrapolating larger trends or well, forecasting even? Well, we're not forecasting yeah. really. What we're what we're saying what we're saying is a hypothetical in this in the following sense is that if um, the climate projections from climate models are correct, then this means that if it, what what people what we the trends we've seen before in terms of rainfall are very interesting actually that there's not necessarily that the Amazon is getting drier, although we have these two mega droughts. It's actually that the Amazon is getting both wetter and drier. That is that the system is oscillating more. But when you go into the wet phase of the oscillation, that doesn't really help the carbon uptake because there's already plenty of water. But when you go into the dry phase of the oscillation, those dry events, the high dry amplitude, the extreme droughts, that really seems to have an enormous impact on the carbon. 
both from the fire point of view and from the reduction of the photosynthesis. Well, so what was a real positive store effect from the wet is having less effect and the dry is getting drier. So the negative effect is getting even more negative? Yes, that's right. I mean, that, that, that's, what we would, that's what we would like. That's what we, we think is, would be likely to happen. Now, of course, you know, our business is really not to predict the future, but to, to try to diagnose the present. But at the same time, we, we really want to make sure that we can understand accurately what's happening in the present before we make projections in the future. And that's really where what in a sense, differs what differs between our study and many previous studies that have commented on the Amazon before have really been model studies. And those model studies have not really had a lot of data to check themselves against. And so that, that's one of the things that we're hoping that will Model be. based on meteorological or sort of yeah, satellite? Model, yeah, it's models, based on, models based on the theory of how ecosystems operate, but very, very simplified theories. You can imagine in a place like the Amazon with its incredible biodiversity, it's very hard to come up with a simple ecological theory that can understand, that can uh, correctly uh, predict the behavior of all these trees and ecosystems, um, because the Amazon, is important to remember, is not just one ecosystem, but a collection of, of hundreds and hundreds of different ecosystems that are slightly different in their plant characteristics, their soil characteristics. So this has really been a data-poor area of the world, and we've just relied upon model predictions. Um, but this new study that, that I was a part of has really hopefully will be a good contributor to the debate because it introduces a good dose of data, which models always need to uh, to make sure right. they're, they're well, right. Thank you so much. We'll look forward to uh, future research that you're working on. That was John Miller, a scientist with NOAA's Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences at CU Boulder. Thanks so much for coming on the show, John. Thank you very much. How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Jim Pullen. To understand the global greenhouse gas budgets, it's critical to characterize their sources and sinks, such as in the Amazon basin that we heard about just a moment ago. A definitive study of smokestack emissions shows that power plant emissions in the U.S. are down. We're joined in the studio by the study's lead author, Dr. Joost de Gau. Joost is with the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences at the University of Colorado in Boulder and also NOAA's Earth System Research Laboratory, Chemicals Science Division. Welcome to How on Earth, Joost. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You're most welcome. Yos, before we get into the meat of your recently published work on smokestack emissions, help us understand why we should care about such a gritty subject. Well, power plants are some of the largest anthropogenic sources of uh, trace gases through the atmosphere. And we care about them for two different reasons. Um, first of all, uh, nitrogen oxides and sulfur dioxide are emitted. 
And uh, once released in the atmosphere, they form uh, fine particles and, and they contribute to uh, poor air quality. Um, when air is polluted and it's hazy, fine particles is actually what you see. And, uh, but also if we breed them in, then uh, it has a negative health effect. So secondly, uh, power plants emit carbon dioxide. And of course, that's a greenhouse gas that we care about greatly. Yes. And how much of a contribution to CO2 are power plant emissions? What percentage, say, of the global emission budget are from power plants? In the U.S., it's a, it's a very large fraction. Um, I don't know the exact percentage at the top of my head. I think it's around 25%. Uh, it's a similar percentage for nitrogen uh, oxides. And for SO2, it's a larger percentage. Almost all of the SO2 in the U.S. comes from power plants. What are, what are some other sources of CO2 in the atmosphere? Well, other sources are uh, uh, vehicles, uh, both gasoline and diesel, uh, heating, industry, uh, and there are several other sources as well. And nitrogen oxides? Nitrogen oxides, very similar. Uh, traffic is another large source, industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So an important part of your work is constraining the sources of greenhouse gases and the antecedents to ozone, like nitrogen oxide and sulfur dioxide. And you looked at what's coming out of the nation's coal and gas-powered plants. I guess. And what were your chiefest findings in the work that you just published? Yeah, so fossil fuel power plants are some of the largest sources of, of emissions, like I just said. And um, their emissions are actually measured at the stack, as uh, required by the Clean Air Act. And um, so I looked at those uh, measurements, at the results of those measurements, and um, looked at all the annual values uh, since 1997. And what you see is that since 1997, an increasingly larger fraction of electric power is produced from natural gas as opposed to coal. Uh, and to put some numbers on it, back in 97, uh, about 85% of electric power was produced from, uh, from coal. And now that percentage has, re has been reduced to 59%. And, and of course, the, uh, the remaining part is now generated from, uh, from natural gas. And there are two kinds of natural gas power plants, uh, the combined cycle and then the uh, single cycle plants. What's the difference between those and how do the emissions compare? That's correct. In the, in the old days, um, the plants used natural gas with a single uh, generator. But uh, these days in combined cycle power plants, uh, the plants use two generators used in series to uh, extract even more uh, energy from the uh, the heat in, uh, generated in the combustion process, and the combined cycle plants are even much more is much cleaner than the uh, single cycle plants. They are much more efficient. Um, so compared to coal, um, a modern power plant that uses natural gas and combined cycle technology emits only forty four percent of the CO two compared to a coal power plant. So right. it's a very significant saving. Indeed, about half, uh, or a little, less, uh, a little less than half of the emissions of a coal plant. The U.S. Energy Information Agency, EIA, has also reported on this. And how does your work dovetail with theirs, and uh, how do your results compare with theirs? Uh, the results really are, are very similar. Um, 
We uh, found uh, that there were no results in the peer-reviewed literature uh, that's openly available, and so we decided to uh, to publish this report, and uh, and and also to quantify specifically um, how much of the emissions have been prevented by this this shift from uh, from coal to natural gas uh, for use in electric power generation. Mm-hmm. And. I, I said your work was definitive in my introduction to it, uh, but I'll give you a chance uh, to to uh, weigh in on that. Uh, this, your work is is complete in a sense. You measured all of the smokestack emissions of plants in the United States, or you were able to get those data right, and these are very high-quality data. That's correct. Uh, the uncertainty in these data is very minor. Now... Um, it should be understood that uh, this study uh, only really looks at the, the use of coal and natural gas for electric power generation. And of course, there are many other issues when it comes to the use of these energy sources. Like extraction and what's leaked at the uh, point of production and uh, all along the chain, the distribution chain, those aren't measured here. But that wasn't the intent, right? That's correct. That's correct. This study really focused on, on the the energy production, the electric power production. Mm-hmm. Tell us about this study in the context of the work that you and your colleagues are doing, for example, in the Utah Basin. How does this work fit in with the greater project that you're working on? Right. So um, we also look at the production of natural gas, which uh, obviously had to increase to meet uh, this demand. And uh, this this increase in production of natural gas comes with uh, increasing leaks in the production system, and so higher emissions of uh, of methane and also of uh, volatile organic compounds. The uh, Clean Air, Clean Jobs Act of 2010, which was supported by Excel and environmental groups, called for replacing really dirty coal plants with cleaner gas plants. Do your results validate uh, Governor Ritter's act? So what our results show is that um, emissions from power plants in the Denver area will be um, reduced from the power plants in the area, area that is, and that has some upsides, obviously, um, but, op- but also uh, there will be an increased demand for natural gas, and, uh, and that will come with, uh, with its own emissions, methane and volatile organic compounds, and that potentially has some downsides, but those are more uncertain and, and need to be investigated in more detail. Right. There's a lot to do. And in just uh, just a word or two, how do you intend to extend your work? Well, we're working very hard right now on the, that latter um, uh, project to really quantify the emissions of methane and uh, volatile organic compounds from uh, natural gas production. Well, thank you very, very much. Our guest is Joost de Gaulle with the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Jim produced and engineered today's show and is our executive producer this quarter. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. We also heard from the Holy Anglo-Saxon Expletive Deleted and the 
BBC Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, we can't mention their name, Susan. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Jim Pullen.